Hello, and happy Halloween from the Words That Burn podcast. This is a very special episode. It is the second Halloween one that I've ever made with this podcast. The purpose is very simple. Listen to some poetry designed to invoke fear and give you something to worry about when the lights go out. In this episode, I will read two poems from two poets, beginning with Windigo by Louise Erdrich an unnerving reimagining of First Nations folklore. This will be followed by Abigail Parry's warning tale, Instructions for Not Becoming a Werewolf. Before we begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poems to read along. It might make it all the more unnerving. If you're having trouble finding one, there are links to them below in the description. Without further ado, here's Windigo by Louise Erdrich. You knew I was coming for you, little one, when the kettle jumped into the fire. Towels flapped on the hooks and the dog crept off, groaning to the deepest part of the woods. In the hackles of dry brush, a thin laughter started up. Mother scolded the food warm and smooth in the pot and called you to eat, but I spoke in the cold trees. New one, I have come for you. Child, hide and lie still. The sumac pushed sour red cones through the air. Copper burned in the raw wood. You saw me dragged toward you. Oh, touch me, I murmured and licked the soles of your feet. You dug your hands into my pale, melting fur. I stole you off, a huge thing in my bristling armor. Steam rolled from my wintry arms, each leaf shivered from the bushes we passed, until they stood, naked, spread like the cleaned spines of fish. Then your warm hands hummed over and shoveled themselves full of the ice and the snow. I would darken and spill all night running until at last morning broke the cold earth and I carried you home, a river shaking in the sun. From those opening lines, there is no doubt in the mind of the listener that this is a truly vile creature with some ill intent. But to make sense of the events unfolding here, we must read the epigraph at the beginning of the poem. For Angela, the Windigo is a flesh-eating, wintry demon with a man buried deep inside of it. In some Chippeway stories, a young girl vanquishes this monster by forcing boiling lard down its throat, thereby releasing the human at the core of ice. The Windigo, or Wendigo, is a creature of First Nations folklore and myth. The Windigo is a myth among the Algonquin-speaking peoples of Canada. The creature is considered a spirit of hunger and decay that haunts the wilderness. It is sometimes said to possess the body of a man, as depicted in this poem. 
Other times it is said to be the result of the transgression of cannibalism. Further to that again, it is sometimes the manifestation of death and hunger in the forest. Here is a description given to academic Jonathan Basil by an Ojibwe teacher. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash-gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from the superation of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odour of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Unfortunately, when researching this, I could not find the name of the Ojibwe teacher who told this tale. From this description, we see it as a true creature of nightmare. The vivid language makes its presence in this poem all the more terrifying. Louise Erdrich is a member of the First Nations, and her work often deals with Native American themes and concepts. It is likely that she heard these tales of the Windigo as a child, and it's not surprising that they stayed with her. The poem is told from the point of view of the Windigo, which builds the suspense even more. Like a first-person shot from a movie, we, the listener, are left on edge and helpless, knowing exactly what is about to happen, but powerless to stop it. The opening line, you knew I was coming for you, little one, creates an instant hooking tension. Everything in the brief scene seems to respond to that tension. The kettle jumps into the fire. The towels are restless on their line. Even the dog senses what's coming and slinks off to hide. Everything in that tiny campfire scene is pulling away from the windigo just out of sight. The entire first stanza is a masterclass in building atmosphere. In the second stanza is a disappointed mother who fails to understand why her child isn't eating. She is unaware of that something that lurks just outside the campfire circle. Yet again, the reader is left feeling frustrated knowing what they do. They are infuriated by the mother's lack of awareness. It is another classic moment of horror, the ignorance of the participant. Erdrich continues her tension building with the rushing of reeds and long grass in the dark, broken only by a sinister laugh. It is a snare ramping up our expectation. The creature begins to speak and foretell its grim intent, but only the child, a baby, a new one can hear it. She is prompted to hide and lie still by the creature, a classic pose of fear. In the following stanza, the tension reaches a fever pitch 
as the fetid thing emerges from its hiding. The imagery here is almost palpable. The blood-red sumac turning the air sour. That sour smell seeming to complement the stench around the rotting windigo. Copper burning into wood increases the danger and the heat of the jumping kettle in stanza one. Everything is acting in service of that mounting tension. Then, the reveal. We see how broken the creature truly is as it drags itself forward toward the child, begging for its touch, some kind of human connection. What happens next is unclear. Does the child grab its fur to oblige its request or to struggle against it? Our instinct as a reader says the latter. The unthinkable happens and the child is stolen away. We as an audience are left bereft. Then our perception of the creature is changed utterly. It is now a thing in bristling armor. We begin to understand that this is a creature of constant heat with steam billowing from its wintry arms. It stands in constant contrast to the snowy world around it. An unnatural element of burning pain. The near claustrophobic setting of the campfire falls away and we find ourselves in a clear not yet innocent place where trees stick out like fish spines the imagery of decay and rot a constant in the poem what happens next allows us to understand that this tale is perhaps not as sinister as we first thought in the final stanza a grueling metamorphosis of healing is found there is an inversion of the myth of Erdrich's epigraph. The young girl shovels soothing snow, as opposed to boiling lard, on the beast's furnace-like heart, a departure from the icy core she originally described. The process seems like a torture for the creature, as it spills darkness and runs fever-like through the night. Ultimately, though, the child's action is its salvation. The it of the Windigo becomes a he, and in turn, he regains his humanity. Final image is one of true calm, and I carried you home, a river shaking in the sun. The man is shaken, but the girl is safe, and the pair have found resolution. There are myriad ways to interpret this poem. The Windigo could easily be a stand-in for male rage and losing one's way in it. The imagery of burning is that of a man consumed by rage, constantly at war with his surroundings. The relationship with the child could be viewed as a redemptive one, reflecting that quality of parenthood that brings true calm to some lives. It is the metamorphosis of new responsibility. More than that, it could simply be the recognition of the capacity for violence 
terror in the human heart. If you wanted to take a positive, it is the knowledge that our perception of monsters is exactly that, a perception. When we understand more of a tale, those things that scare us are not quite so terrifying. Whatever we might think, at its core, this is a tale of the dual nature of man, and that just beneath the surface of each and every person lurks the capacity for true monstrosity. From a beast of rage to a cursed one, here is Instructions for Not Becoming a Werewolf by Abigail Parry. You feel it first as an itch in the teeth, a gnarl of nerves coiled too tight, some taut aperture sliding open between the heart and the gut. Precautions must be taken. Do not enjoy too much the quick grey jolt of hair, the split-crate thrill of punctured apple skin. High, lonely places wind, the supple creak of oiled leather. Woods are of course best avoided, copses, spinneys, anywhere in fact, where the strong sweet bulk of horse chestnut crowds too close where you can raise the wet note of fresh churned earth by digging in the nails. Rivers are not to be trusted. They know too much. They nuzzle the base of cliffs and snout at kitchen doors. They learn from the granite of the hills the pulp of slick black roots and lovely braids unwinding in the weeds. The moon may be looked at in moderation, but don't let it give you any ideas. Fill your house with mirrors, watch the clock speak often. Do not feel you are safe in the city. There's another under this one. Stop your ears to curlews, vixens, hounds. They've tales to tell if you've the ears, and you've no idea what it is to have ears like mine. What we have in this poem is a celebration of the werewolf myth and the lore that dictates it. It is a simple instruction manual on how to avoid transformation, which becomes a beautiful catalogue of things unseen but always felt. The world of Abigail Parry's poem is filled with interlocking layers and hidden meaning. In many ways, these hidden meanings are the perfect accompaniment to a werewolf. What is a werewolf but a hidden monstrous creature masquerading as a human? A whole being kept just out of sight. Perhaps this layered and playful approach is not so surprising considering that Abigail Parry worked as a toy maker for several years before becoming a poet. In these seven stanzas, we see a uniquely shifting world, one filled with transformation. Each section 
describing a different change. In the first, we feel an internal shift as our narrator warns that precautions must be taken. That final line of the stanza creates a race against the clock, a race against lycanthropy. The body begins to reject the form it's in, with teeth itching in their gums, nerves constricting and causing pain. The true internal shift takes place when the division of heart and gut ceases, and a being of instinct takes the fore, all emotion and hunger. This first stanza is the most structured of the poem, ending in a simple full stop. The next few, however, use enjambment, the running on of sentences in poetry, to evoke a frenetic pace. This pace is one all the more suited to a werewolf in the midst of transformation and the hectic mental state that must accompany that. Moving on from there, the next stanza is one filled with wordplay. Again, not surprising, given that Parry completed her thesis on that exact subject. A stark warning is given. Do not enjoy too much the quick grey jolt of hair. A reference on one level to the growth of thick wolf's hair during the change. And a warning not to enjoy the thrill of anger and violence that accompanies it. But when taking the spelling into account, H-A-R-E, it is also a reference to the thrill of hunting the rabbit-like creature that moves at a lightning speed. There is another warning not to enjoy the puncture of flesh in wolf form. There is a truly sensual quality to the language here, and it is very much a poem of the senses as we talk of the supple creek, oiled leather. Everything here is warning us not to give in to hedonism, constant pleasure in visceral activity. And then, we are in the woods, surrounded by small groups of trees, copses and spinnies. We are told that it is not only the woods, but to avoid anywhere. The places that might be crowded with trees and chestnuts, which could be an analogy for cities filled with people. The sense of smell dominates the final lines, the notes of fresh churned earth as claws are dug in deep, flexing in power and joy. By the third stanza, we are shown a landscape of chaos, where everything is an uneasy alliance. The natural world is not to be trusted. Rivers know too much. Their fluid movement mimics that of the slick lupine form that we just read about. The poet fuses the city and the forest again as they snout around cliff bases and kitchen doors. Urban meets rural, tame versus wild. It is interesting that it is not only humans that are transformed here, but the water too. Everything in the world of this poem holds secrets. Granite, pulp roots, weeds 
and they reveal their secrets to a keen sense of scent. The Gothic has seeped into every inch of the stanza. The moon, that traditional werewolf lure, is our lead-on word this time, and the next two lines must be important as they stand apart from the rest. The moon may be looked at in moderation, but don't let it give you any ideas. You must resist the temptation of this, the most lycanthropic of things, the moon high in the sky. The draw of the wilder side must be fought back. The whole poem is a testament to self-control. Self-control in the face of fury, desire, frustration. No matter what the world sparks in us, do not give in to the curse of monstrosity that is rage. But how can we do that? Stanza five might hold the key. Never be complacent. Never feel you are safe in the city. We may feel from the earlier stanzas that nature is where the curse might thrive. But if Hollywood has taught us anything, it's that nowhere is utterly safe from these wolfish creatures of the night. The poet talks of mirrors, a tool of reflection, which may help us cling to our humanity. In this stanza of noise, clocks might help us to block out this world of secrets. But ultimately, we must stop our ears for fear of what might be spilled into them. In referencing curlews, vixens and hounds, Parry seems to be referencing the notion of a witch's familiar, but it is equally as sinister. The hidden city of this poem is always seeking out new ways to tempt and possibly corrupt us. In the final two lines, we come to understand how our narrator has come by such instruction. And you've no idea what it is to have ears like mine. They too are fighting a primal battle to maintain themselves. And it would seem that they are losing. Once again, there are many ways to interpret this poem of monstrous transformation. To me, there is a clearly feminist reading. The poet is expressing the constant strain she is under to reserve her more aggressive side, as society, patriarchal as it is, does not permit women to show their full range of emotion. The whispers of secrets and hidden things are the judgment and prejudice of a society constantly bears down upon women. There are interesting notes of the threat faced by women on a daily basis, the fact that they are never safe in the city, the fact that they must not give in to expressing their violence as they may never stop once it starts. It's a fascinating poem showing a very divided psyche struggling with itself. In a more universal sense, it is the human struggle to curb impulses and desires that we mustn't give into, or rather that we feel we mustn't give into. There is the constant layering of the city and forest that I spoke about, 
a clear divide between society and what it expects of us and the instinct that drives our base nature. At the very heart of this poem is the struggle to maintain control and the fear of what happens when we lose it. To explore that, this poet has chosen one of the greatest symbols for that reckless nature, the werewolf. We are left with the question, is the narrator telling us this so we do not become a werewolf? Or is the narrator telling us this to show that it is inevitable that we will be consumed by our cursed form? and that we might one day know what it is to have ears like theirs. Both poems in this episode have dealt with monstrous transformation. One on the danger of being fully consumed by our more violent nature, and the other on the sheer battle of will not to be. Both poems use mythic structures and folklore to tell these stories, giving them a deep sense of meaning. More importantly, both do so with phenomenal pacing and tension, a testament to the wonderful way in which poetry can evoke even the strongest of emotions, from rage to terror. Above all else, as we approach Halloween, these poems serve as a reminder that people and monsters are not so different and can often be found in the dead of night, stalking hand in hand. I'll leave you with the simple poem Monster by Henry Rago. A reminder that all a monster truly is, is whatever you fear in your heart. Through a wild midnight, all my mountainous past labored and heaved with all I had forgotten, until a poem no bigger than a mouse came forth, and with the darkness finally passed, we faced each other, begetter and begotten. Monster, I cried, and monster, cried the mouse. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Words That Burn. I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation of the poems. If you've enjoyed this episode and you feel like spreading some Halloween mischief, you might consider sending it to someone you know who would enjoy it. If you'd like to support me in other ways, you can leave me a review anywhere you listen to the podcast. They really do help. If you'd like to look at any of the links for the show's social media, or if you'd like to see the show notes with references, you can click on the Substack link below, the Instagram link below, or the website link below. Happy Halloween.